This is an Area Code podcast. Hi, I'm Amy Simmons. And I'm Crispin Mayfield. And welcome to the Attached to the Invisible podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm going to interview Victor Counted, but first I just wanted to put a pitch out there for questions. So in the coming week, at a time that is yet to be decided upon, Amy and I are going to record an episode about family systems and attachment. She knows a lot about family systems. I know a lot about attachment, and we're going to talk about what that means for spirituality and God. If you have any discussion questions around that, please contact me on Twitter at K underscore underscore Mayfield, or you can email attachedpdx at gmail.com or any other questions that you have. We just want to keep this conversation going along those lines. Um, I just love when people are sharing about this because I think that attachment is such an important piece of spirituality in the life of the church. And, um, and I think it's just a huge asset to not just psychologists, but to ministry leaders and pastors to understand this drive that we have to connect and what happens when it's not met and also what healthy relationship looks like and just all the benefits of reading attachment, getting into attachment research. Um, and hopefully we're presenting these uh, concepts in ways that are digestible enough. Um, Along those lines, uh, today with Victor, um, we talk about some more technical terms, so I wanted to go over those. Uh, One is the correspondence model, and the other is the compensation model. So basically, that's the idea that our relationship with God, our attachment style with God is based on our family of origin, or at least our, our current um, attachment style and other relationships. So correspondence would mean that uh, if we have a secure attachment with our parents, then we have a secure attachment with God. It corresponds. The compensation model, on the other hand, would mean that uh, our attachment with God actually compensates for a lack of attachment security that we had in our family of origin. So this uh, sometimes shows up as people that are like, oh my gosh, no one in my life has ever loved me, but now I've discovered God and finally here's someone that I can rely on in a way that I haven't been able to do before. And there's lots and lots of interesting research, we don't go over it in this episode, but about the the uh the about how those play out and oftentimes people will start their spiritual especially if they're a convert to christianity then they will start in one camp and they'll end up in another which is really interesting uh maybe amy and i will talk more about that or i can track down some people that uh know more about that topic but victor is an invaluable voice in this conversation He is a behavioral and health scientist, author, consultant, and speaker. Um, He focuses on the intersection of psychology and religious studies. And um, if you go to his website, which is in the show notes, you can see a lot of the stuff that he's written. I, there's so many things that I like about his work, but one thing that is close to my heart that you'll learn about in this interview is that he has done research with African migrants or immigrants or refugees um, to look at what what are the ways that they, what are the reasons that they connect with God? 
and showing that it's not just out of like culture or religion, but actually in this distressing new place, they are reaching out to God um, and are, the attachment uh the attachment drive kicks on in that moment um, or in those moments. Um, and so lots of interesting stuff that he has on his website. I would totally direct you there. Um, and without further ado, here's my interview with Victor Counted, PhD. Uh, yeah, I want to jump in, if that's all right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll uh... Um, At like almost 15 minutes, catch it up. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, what's, what is your background with attachment science and faith? Um, my background, uh, I think um, I would say it's, it, uh, it's interesting uh, how, you know, life kind of evolves and you get to um, do things based on your story, you know. I think on one hand is the fact that, uh, uh, but okay, let me get to that later. Uh, I I would say that it it started when I was actually doing my research in South Africa in in a place called Stellenbosch. So I was trying to look at uh, what I call the youth identity crisis. So I wanted to make sense of it. Or you could say youth mental health, really. Um, and um, what was interesting for me was I realized that the problem, what was happening at that time, had to do with uh, what's based on the family dynamics. And within the communities that I worked with, uh, one of the things that was common then was there was a lot of family dysfunction and all that. So, and it boiled down on attachment. Now, uh, I remember talking to one of my friends at Within, Edward Davis, and he told me he did a research on attachment and authenticity. So authenticity, it's a sort of a concept that a lot of people use to conceptualize uh, identity in a formation in itself. Um, so, so he did a PhD in that. So that's how it started. And I, I spoke with him. And he sent me some of his me- the measures that he used in his research. And uh, from there, you know, I was just excited about it. And I started reading more about it, you know, and it made really good sense for me. Um, and, and that's how we started. So I first did the research on attachment and authenticity, the same you know, topic in a South African context. And I was working with young people at that time, just wanted to get a sense of what was happening. And, and one of the things I found that that was happening at that time, there were a lot of young people, because I was working with most of them were in a Christian church or, you know, and I noticed that most of them are actually turned to religion or turned, had their faith experience was as a result of what they experience in their family homes. You know, either uh, the father, their father were not there or uh, they were abandoned as, uh, as teenagers or something like that. There, there would always be similar experience and stories. And that was how we started. And I, re- and I found that as I was reading uh, the attachment literature, the whole compensation and correspondence models, it kind of made sense and brought clarity to what was happening. So what was happening was as a result of their attachment experience, they formed attachment to God, 
which enabled them to shape or which kind of informed their sense of identity and authenticity in that sense. So that's how we started on, on, on that on a professional level. So but for me, on a personal level, I think it still goes back to what I said earlier, that it's interesting how our power is in our story. Um, you know, our message sort of is in our mess in a sense that for me, I had a really uh, experienced uh, attachment abandonment uh, from my parents. And um, that kind of affected my my whole life, really. Um, and um, and I realized that I, I it didn't make sense until I started writing on this. I'll tell you, when I started writing on this initially, um, it never came to mind. Just It was about two years ago. I was like, wait a minute. I think this is my story, you know. Um, okay. I realized that all this while, what has kept me has been my relationship with God in the absence of my, my mom or my dad, you know, and it made sense for me. And then it was also me trying to understand my journey, you know, and that led me to this. And, and I just thought about what to do to, you know, contribute to the science and, and what I can do to kind of, you know, expand on it. And I think that's how it started for me, really. Yeah, that's how it started. Yeah, that's so great. And I love that whole conversation about the correspondence versus um, compensation yeah. model. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because oftentimes you realize that some people – uh, uh, have a relationship or turn to God, uh, you know, for relationship because they they didn't ha- they don't have um, a secure relationship with either a parent or even a romantic partner, and they find that safety in God, who now becomes their safe heaven. So they are compensating for the negative experience in a previous relationship. Now they find it in God, and when they are grounded in that new relationship with God. What happens, it becomes their secure base. And from there, they can really what I explore life and, you know, find themselves in God and all that. You know, so it's kind of quite fascinating. But then the second angle to that is the correspondence model, you know, where a lot of people turn to God, not necessarily because they are having a negative insecure relationship with a previous partner or some, you know, or, 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 or figure, but simply because they, they just want to explore that, you know, and that's an element of exploration, curiosity there, you know, where they want to explore this new, you know, this person or this relationship. And in doing that, they might, you know, form attachment in the process. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, so you've uh, done some research observing African migrants in Australia and the Netherlands. Mm. Um, And so my wife and I, we've for about 15 years uh, have been involved in some refugee communities here in the U.S. Um, Actually, it's kind of... appropriate i almost missed this interview because my wife was like at the hospital with a a refugee family recently uh this evening Um, anyway so in in our experience the first generation immigrants tend to be really religious 
Um, and then their kids, not so much. And I wondered if you knew anything about that uh, trend. Um, I guess I guess most people would say that's my contribution to the whole attachment to God uh, literature. Um, uh, overall, I think for me personally, uh, it, it's it, it, it go what I've done. Like I did research in the Netherlands. I worked. I studied uh, African migrants, and also here in uh, Australia. Uh, essentially, what I was trying to do was to say that. Oftentimes, what happens in a, a place shapes how whether or not people relate to God or form attachment to God. So, and and one of the things that's mentioned in literature in attachment to God is that people often researchers and those that have really done research in this area, whether it's Per uh, Grantslick or uh, Lee Kirkpatrick, uh, one of the things they often miss is the fact that. You can't talk about people's attachment to God without talking about the contextual factors that led to that. And uh, for migrants, for example, it could be uh, leaving, you know, their their home countries to a new place and trying to socially adapt. And um, you know, uh, in that new environment, they need to anchor on something that will help them to really, you know, find themselves in that space. So, and, and I think that's what I try to emphasize. It. And I wasn't particularly looking at uh, migrants per se, but overall saying that place has something to tell us about this whole attachment to God experience. And that is what I've tried to do. Now, uh, it's actually interesting, especially with your second question about uh, first generation migrants and second generation migrants. Um, uh, in one of my papers, one of the things we found, we found that uh, uh, first generation migrants are from people that have been in a new place, of migrants that have been in a new place for more than, um, for more, for a longer period of time, actually often um, form some kind of insecure attachment to God or, you know, in a way where they sort of avoid God compared to those that are new, you know, mm. and, 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 and this, but then when it comes to those that are, that are not religious, that are not religious migrants, non-religious migrants in a new country, when they come to a new country, they don't have attachment to God. But after a longer period, once once they've stayed there for a longer period of time, of course, facing a whole lot of uh, cultural challenges, they tend to turn to God. And these are people that were not religious. And it tells us um, um, what uh, the role of attachment is for those people. I, I try to avoid using the word religious because... Mm. Uh, it's easy to say that, oh, yeah, first-generation migrants are religious and second-generation migrants are not. Maybe the problem is not with religion itself, but the security that the relationship that they are experiencing gives them. But first-generation migrants, they find that security in their relationship with God. Who helps them to explore what its opportunities or whatever they want to get in the new space? Now, for the second generation migrant, that might not be the case. It's not, they're not necessarily interested in the opportunities or whatever, because maybe at this point they have the social capital to thrive in a new space. And it could be other mm. factors. And they're likely to turn to God 
for other reasons and not because of that. You know, mm-hmm. so in that sense, it's not really about religion per se. Um, then you don't necessarily need to keep to certain set religious beliefs or sets of practices to form an attachment to God in that sense. You know, so for mm-hmm. second generation migrants, what you find is that they may not uh, express have that flamboyant. <laughs> expression of religion or religious beliefs and all that but you will find out that they might um they might in their own little ways you know kind of you know turn to whether it's their faith or to god to help them deal with um psychological issues that they face you know maybe insecurity in their own ways or low self-esteem or you know it could be a range of other things you know um, for them, because they have a, the right social capital, so the way they approach their God is different. So uh, I try to move away from the concept of it's them being religious and the others are not. Mm. Uh, I, I think it boils down on the motivational drivers of a relationship with God. You know, uh, and, and they both turn to God, but maybe for different reasons, you know, and for different... Um, objectives and yeah 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 and especially also at migrant families uh there's this uh abandonment and attachment issues now for first generation migrants um they're coming to a new space now they're coming to a new space so they're trusting god to help them to settle in and get opportunities and whatever form a new life for second generation migrants it's no longer there for them it could be turning to God because mommy and daddy were always busy working, trying to pay bills. And now they grew up having, you know, a lot of uh, psychological problems because they didn't have the, the, the dynamics of the home was not, ba- it's not balanced because daddy or mommy was always working. So for them, it shifts now that it might be turning to God for all the reasons Maybe they might be turning to God for security because, or for as a father figure, because daddy is always working as a first generation migrant. That's all, what they all know to how to do. And then it's different. So it's about what is the negotiating factor and the motivational drive that drives uh, that, that, that that's what separates whether or not the first or second generation migrant or how they sort of experience God in that sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So you've experienced several different cultures in different ways. Um, I've picked up from some of your writings that you've lived in some different on different continents, obviously. Um, I was wondering, um, you know, as you, are in and out of different cultures, do you notice any significant differences in approach to relationship with God? You know, definitely. Um, people experience God uh, from the lens of of culture or their context. You know, we definitely all experience God differently. Um, it's funny, I tell people that, you know, I'm a global citizen now. <laughs> I've had a bit of experience here and there, and and that has sort of made me to lose a sense of my identity. So I have a bit of an identity crisis, you know. <laughs> but 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 um, 
it has also helped me to see what is the good and the bad in people and cultures and have a sense of how people sort of um, um, experience different things, you know. But I wouldn't focus so much on the on the uh, differences now. I'll, I'll try to focus on the similarities. That's great. The similarities in the sense, I think, would be it's, it's place-based in the sense that uh, people of different cultures are likely to turn to God for, for relationship uh, because of what is happening in, a, in their context, because of, uh, because of their place experience. Um, and, and now with regards to the differences, I, I will start to, I'll just point, point, point you back to place as well. The differences has a lot. Place has a lot to tell us about the differences in cultures. For example, for migrants, migrants, may, like I said earlier, might turn, they may turn to God because um, it helps them to navigate opportunities in a new place. Uh, for non-native, they are likely to turn to God for a relationship when they sort of experience um, a natural disaster, for example. Look, for example, what's happening in Australia. And you go to a lot of regional uh, Australian communities affected by the bushfire, you know, it's ended now due to the rain, affected by the bushfire incident. What is happening is most of those communities, there's this sense of hope that you see because a lot of fit leaders are coming together trying to work with these communities to heal and get back on their feet, you know. And, and you'd be surprised, most of the people doing that, most of them probably haven't really gone to church for a long time. But because of the disaster, they're now trying to find a way to reconcile, uh, you know, with God and, you know, find themselves within that dynamics, you know. And, and you find out whenever something happens, whether... It's um, there's some kind of disaster or attack. You know, people tend to turn to their spiritual self, you know. So it's often contextual. Uh, I have a friend of mine in, in Israel, uh, Miriam Billick. She actually contributed a chapter in, one of, in our recent book. And uh, her argument is that for the Jewish people in Israel, they form uh, their relationship with God is based on whether or not they're close to the Holy Land, you know? Mm. So even if, especially with the Gaza Strip, for example, uh, with all the with the hostility there, you find out that a lot of the Jewish people still want to call that the, the place their home because they feel staying closer to Gaza, really it's important for them. They need to be there. Mm. You know, that's what, that's how they negotiate their relationship with God. You know, even with Muslims, uh, Muslims uh, would always um, tie their story back to the experience um, Prophet Muhammad uh, had, you know, hundreds centuries ago, you know, in, in a place. Uh, uh, for the Buddhist people in Buddhism, I think Buddhism, I think, uh, in Buddhism is different. Now, their relationship with God, it's based on the concept of detachment. I, I talked about this a bit in one of my papers. It's based on the concept of detachment. For them, forming a relationship with God should be, it's, it's, it, there's a sense of attachment to a place in that sense, but you have to detach yourself from a particular place and have some kind of emerging focus. 
attach yourself to. That's a word for it, a place that you need to be. It's not a physical place. And by you being in that place mentally, now you are in in some kind of you're having you're in in a, in a union with God, some or in a union with a divine entity or something. Uh, and and it goes on like this. You know, each of these cultures have their own different perception and how they kind of you know interpret uh, their relationship with God. Even in Christianity, for example, as Christians. If you start with the Old Testament, you find you find that that most of the narratives of faith and you know the biblical narrative of faith always happen in a place, um, and, and 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 that you move to the New Testament, there's that's a paradigm shift where the focus is no longer on focusing on a place or getting to Canaan, the Promised Land, or uh, because all these things are how people sort of negotiated their uh, relationship with God. But it goes beyond that. Now, people need to form attachment with the Holy Spirit who now lives on the inside of us. So it's not, it's not to a particular place. So our relationship with God has a lot more to do with how our understanding of our embodied uh, divineness, you know, in a sense where we have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. So, and, and it goes, you know, in different contexts and cultures understand it differently. For young people, it could just be the fact that their relationship with God is based on a compensatory ground where they are turning to God because uh, it, their caregiver were not there. And then they find uh, maybe they found Jesus, for example, and then they get to the teachings about Jesus in the church, and through that process, nurture their faith. You know, so it, it, we all experience uh, our relationship with God differently. Uh, but what's important is uh, what that relationship with God does for us, and um, and that's really you know what's important. And and for me personally, that's what I try to understand. Each of us have our own you know, uh, a divine entity. It's about identifying what it is and then, um, you know, try to articulate what actually is happening within that relational dynamics, you know. I could keep going on this. So I've- uh-huh, that's great, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting um, because at least in American evangelicalism, in particular parts of American evangelicalism, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, you know, it's really, it's like, it's not about us. It's about God. Um, and so it's interesting to hear, you know, you're looking, you know, some of your research is the science of, uh, what are people hoping to get from God? What, yeah. What do you find are like some of the big themes there that, you know, what are the motivations that bring people to God? Um, like my own work, I I try to look at, uh, I've, I've, I've used the word the psychology of religion on place to kind of, you know, explain it. But but under that, I understand the process of our relationship with God is based on two processes. One, it's what I call the transitional process, where the focus is on the benefit of the relationship. So uh, especially at the benefit of the relationship, it's a measure against the attachment criteria where the attachment figure becomes a safe haven 
a secure base, a target of proximity, and you know the individual is, is perceived as stronger and wiser. And there's two more others, but I like to stay with the first three: proximity, secure base, and safe haven. Now, with this model, that's essentially what our relationship with God is all about. For most people, at the transitional phase, where the focus of that, the focus is on the benefit, the advantage of the attachment relationship. So with the transitional phase, the focus is on the benefits of the attachment relationship. How does it measure up with the attachment criteria? The focus is on God being a safe heaven, a secure base, and a target for proximity. Now, with being a target for proximity, that's the first function of an attachment relationship because you want to stay close to your attachment figure. So normally, people want to stay close to God. You know, that's what is taught in most monotheistic religions, especially in Christianity, that people should form a personal relationship with God. So that first function mm -hmm. is proximity. But then beyond just staying close to God as an attachment figure, is the function of safety, where people turn to God because they feel they will find it, it, he, he, he's, a safe he's their safe heaven. So what that means is that you turn to God because when you are in crisis or when you are in danger, that's, that's your first running point. And people do that either by praying or by singing spiritual songs or reading a religious book, something to help them to mm -hmm. cope with whatever that they are dealing with. But then beyond just that is the start from the thought function, which is the secure base component, where by virtue of the repeated relationship with God, you know, and, and the closeness with God now, the individual finds confidence in that relationship, and then God becomes a secure base. And once God becomes a secure base, that's where the individual step to explore their identity or shape their identity based on things that they are seeing in their attachment figure, you know. And it's very important. And that's just the transitional process where the focus is on the benefit of the relationship. But now the, the second part of that is a transactional process. Now, the transactional process, the focus is just beyond just the, the, the benefit of the relationship, that, that, uh, 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 that initial process, you know. And the focus now is on the transaction between the two uh, partners within that relationship. And, you know, when it comes to transactions between two people, between the sender and the receiver, when you come to that, you realize that it, it, sometimes it could be problematic, okay? It can be problematic when you start to focus on the nature of a communication between two people. And that's where spiritual struggle comes. Because sometimes a believer might feel, oh, he's abandoned by God, whereas that's not the case. It's just that there are things God is preventing them from doing because the time for that is not yet uh, uh, right, you know. Um, if your father, for example, and your son wants to pick up a car to drive and he's just 10 years old, you, you wouldn't allow your son to do that. And that's often what happens with us, especially in our relationship with God, where we often want to take the lead and God is seeing beyond us. Now, this is in the transactional process. And he's saying no. And you're saying, yes, you have to answer this prayer. You know, you have to give me this million dollars. And he's saying, no, if I give you that money, you're going to, it's going to mess you up. 
and we'll feel in that process that God has abandoned us. So the focus of the second part, which I think is very important, the transactional process, it's in the nature of the communication between the believer and God. And as you start to look deep, it might not really be as uh, smooth and easy as the first process, you know. So that that's how I try to, you know, uh, and I've published uh, on this and still working on developing it for as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. That's a really helpful framework of the, like, two parts. And I think that's uh, often the tension that comes up where um, people, you know, there's this one side, like God is compassionate. God is loves unconditionally. Um, and then they're like, what, what about all these other parts where God is asking us to do things? And I think it all comes from his love, but it's really interesting to hear it put in that, in that framework. Um, as you've learned about attachment and faith, have there been any aspects to scripture or the story of God that you've gained new insight on? Um, um, I think, uh, definitely. I think one of the things that this tells me, uh, is the fact that God is a relational God. Um, especially when you start to study attachment and, read the scripture or read the Bible from the lens of attachment theory, you realize that God is always a relational God. And what that simply means is that uh, whether you go to the scripture or you go to the Old or New Testament, he always reveals himself as a relational being. And this also falls within the framework of the missional theology or, you know, if you're familiar with that. And essentially, the idea there is that uh, God um, reveals himself as God the Father in the first moment and then revealed himself as, as Jesus. And now he's revealing himself as the Holy Spirit. Now, this is within the Christian theological context. I believe this mm-hmm. is a, a Christian. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So, so a lot of my colleagues, if they hear this, they'll be like, oh, this guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying that because I believe I'm talking to fellow Christians. So, you know, so, so this relationality is, is the image of God. You know, as God the Father, uh, well, it, it's an important position, but at the same time, you know, there are things he can do as God the Father. So he reveals himself as Jesus so that he would be in relationship with people and understand what it means to be us, you know, and and so that would help him to have that empathy as God. And he walked through that. But then beyond just just being Jesus, he revealed himself as the Holy Spirit, which is very important. And what that means is that because if it's Jesus, the God, and Jesus, the man. Now, I know there are a lot of theological arguments on this, but my position is that he's God, he's Jesus, God, and Jesus, man. Now, if he is that, if he is, let's say, if he was still in existence today, you know, he'd probably be in Jerusalem, and people here, we wouldn't really hear about him all. But he revealed himself as as the Holy Spirit, meaning that once you are a believer, you have him on the inside of you. He dwells inside of you. And and the whole essence of that is the fact that 
he wants to be in a relationship with everybody that identify uh, Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And for me personally, I think the narrative now should go beyond just focusing on attachment to God. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to, um, some of my evangelical theology of, of friends that are within the evangelical theological circles, I've been trying to get uh, one or two of them so we walk on the whole idea about attachment to the Holy Spirit, because I think that is not often being talked about. But I think it would be amazing to go beyond just narrative of attachment to God and talk about attachment to the Holy Spirit and what it really means for the believer. Yeah, I think it's where, um, especially Christians um, or evangelical theologians should find a way to walk in that angle because I think that's an important narrative that is not often being talked about. In fact, I don't think anybody has really written on attachment to the Holy Spirit. Mm. But think about it. That's essentially what he's doing. The Holy Spirit is our ultimate attachment figure because he lives on the inside of us. I feel safe because he's on the inside of me. I'm secure enough to do things that I ordinarily on my own wouldn't believe I would do. And in terms of proximity, he is there on the inside of me. You know, so that that the whole relationality of God, it's important. And once we use attachment, it's just one way of seeing that. Uh, but that uh, engagement with uh, uh, theological discourse, I think it's very important as well. And as you look at the scripture, you find that, that it helps us to understand God more, you know, as a, a relational being. I have, I have one more question, like a follow-up to that. So you're talking about the Holy Spirit is with us, right? And Jesus says that, I'm with you to the end of the age. Mm. And yet in the church, we talk a lot about being far from God, being close to God. We're always, not always, but often talking in terms of proximity. Yeah. And I'm really curious what you make of that. Why do we continue to use that language? Why do we continue to use the language? language of proximity yeah you know like you know with a lots of worship songs about inviting god to come close or you know we talk about if we're if we're sinning a lot then we're far from god mm. Mm. i think it also goes back to understanding what a relationship really is um there's no relationship uh without uh proximity what is imagined proximity or actual physical proximity or whichever way you want to put it, you know. And and essentially, one of the other things about relationship, it, it and this is just at the transitional phase, you know, proximity, proximity is very important. But then when it, you start to look at relationship as a transaction between two people, you realize there will be spiritual struggles. There will be spiritual struggles, you know. And as believers, it's important that we recognize this because there are times that we might not really get what we want to get from God, even though he might actually know what we are all about and know what we need. But it's possible that we're not ready for what we need. And and emphasizing the whole narrative around sin, and think about it, if God is a relational being, 
that's interested in a relationship with with people that are drawn to him. I don't think that he he would hit us so much, you know, as to regardless of how filthy that we think we are, that he would just abandon us and because we feel he did not do what we expect him to do or abandon us because we've seen seen it's actually now that's the, that's another thing especially with sin i guess this is my theological side kicking in uh-huh. but, but, yeah. but i think especially with sin sin is very relative what is sin to you crispin is different from what sin to me you know moses moses his sin was simply not to pray for the children of israel and in so many ways, many other people, their sin is different from, 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 from the general notion of sin, you know. So understand, as I like the scripture in um, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. And it, the, the Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Now, this is not my psychological side talking. It's a bit uh-huh. of preacher side. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 say, Therefore, uh, since we are, since we've been surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And he goes forward and say, and the sin, the sin that hinders us. So, in other words, especially with sin, it's not talking about a particular sin. It's saying the, the sin. It's a definite article which suggests that your sin is different from my sin. And sometimes what we think is sin is actually not, it's not actually not sin. And sin could be a form of doubt and unbelief. Unbelief, not believing that God is there for you, even in that situation. And it gets me sometimes, you know, sometimes I struggle with that. But he is my father. He is my attachment figure. You know, I don't turn to anybody but to him. And because he is that, and there's something about just humbling ourselves in the realization of God's presence in our lives. Father, I really don't know what will happen, but I know that you're here for me. There's something that happens when we just let it all out. Do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something that happens. And, and acknowledging that he knows what he's doing. Acknowledging that we're not perfect people. Hey, and I tell you, that that does wonders. I personally, at least for me, you know, mm-hmm. at least for me, you know. Yeah. And, and yeah. as believers, once we come to that position where it's no longer about to us, um, I don't want to feel, about, I, don't, I don't think you, God has abandoned me. Whatever is happening, I believe it's happening for a reason because all things work together for my good. And, and that's it. All things work together for my good. And regardless of what's happening, I don't care because I know that my father is taking good care of me. And that's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. And when we are in doubt about his presence, we should remember that he resides on the inside of us. 
you know, and that's who I am, and that's my identity, and that's why I'm a child of God, you know. I'm sorry, I was going a bit preachy on that. <laughs> that's great, yeah. Thank you so much. And I think it's, I, I'm really excited for the work that you're going to do on looking at attachment to the Holy Spirit. That makes me really excited. Yes, yeah. I think it's something that's not being talked about. And um, generally, sadly, I'll tell you this. Uh, I think there's this uh, general ambivalence about psychology among uh, Christians and theologians. Uh, the thing that psychology just defeats the purpose of Christianity, which I think, on the contrary, actually complements our faith and what we believe. It provides empirical, empirical evidence, you know, and and shying away from from it wouldn't help the church. I don't think so. The, the, we're called to be the light of the world. And one of the components or properties of light is that it's bright. So we should be people of sound mind. And what that means, could it, what that could imply, is that we should maybe start on learning what we think that we know in order to really understand our experience. And um, I'm happy that God is raising people like you as well to help to bridge that gap and illuminate on what it really means uh, to be a person of faith. And um, I'm happy that attachment science helped us to sort of clarify that, you know, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Victor. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about these things. And I, again, really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thanks, thank you, quite honored. Thank you for, yeah. for, for having me, it's really. And you're doing an amazing job, and I appreciate what you do. You're, you're a bridge. <laughs> thanks. You are too. We're, we're both standing in that gap, so thanks. This is an Area Code podcast.